This is They Create Worlds, episode 161, The 100,000, part 2. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Well, apparently you kids decided to prove me wrong, because we're at 99,199 at the time of this recording, which means by the time the first of these two-parter came out, this is very likely have hit 100,000. Definitely by the time this one does. Wonderful. So that planning worked out well. And by planning, I mean Jeff said we were close and said we probably wouldn't make it by the time these episodes came out. But I was like, let's do this thing. And so we did it. And look, it worked. Theoretically, anyway. Absolutely. I'm pretty sure at just 801 downloads to go, that's going to happen in the course of two episodes. I think so. So thank you to all the listeners out there for downloading us, having your bots download us, listening to us, ignoring us, whatever you've done, whatever you did to get us to 100,000 downloads across our 161 episodes. Thank you so much. Here's to 161 more. I can't even believe that we made it to 161 episodes. Pretty crazy. I bring the knowledge, but it's really all you, Jeffrey, because as I've said, when I've guested or we've guested on other podcasts, I know me and I know that if I were fully in charge putting out a podcast, I might put one out occasionally. It would not be twice a month like clockwork. All the work you do behind the scenes editing is really what makes this possible. So thank you, Jeffrey. Thank you for providing knowledge and letting me drag you in front of a camera slash microphone in order to make you talk for hours on end. It's almost like we're a team. Funny how that works. It is. It really is. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is, it's just like every hour of raw recording, I probably knock out about 20 minutes of it. Yeah. Whenever we do a final episode of something, just think that 20 to 40 minutes of raw random stuff has been cut from that episode. Not to mention all that time finding those show notes because Alex went off on a tangent and mentioned another thing, and now it's another note in the file. So many YouTube videos. Yes, well, this time I certainly hope you're not trying to put all of these games in the show notes because I hesitate to say drive you mad because you're probably already there, but it would probably drive you over a precipice from which even the mad could not possibly escape. As you all know, Sanity is just a stack, so if we overload it, I'll just go back around to Sane again from Insane. Oh, God. Well, I hope you don't try to find videos for every game we're talking about in this two-parter, or you might be driven sane, and that's a frightening thought. There you go. Here we are, continuing our look back at some of the best-selling computer games of the 1980s. Just to very briefly recap here, these are figures that were compiled by the Software Publishers Association, a U.S. lobbying organization for the entire computer software industry. Therefore, the sales we are looking at are U.S. sales, and they are only sales of member publishers of the SPA, which means that there are certainly some publishers, I suspect, especially some of the Japanese publishers, that are not represented. 
Also, the list cuts off because of when the reporting was at about April 1989, so it doesn't quite cover the entire decade, but it certainly covers most of it. We are counting down those games that the SPA deemed were bestsellers, either diamond bestsellers with a 500,000 sales or more, platinum bestsellers, 250,000 or more, gold, 100,000 or more, and silver, 50,000 or more. We did the big boys in part one, those 500s and those 250s. We are going to move at a much brisker pace and cover at least all of the 100,000s today. We may not cover the 50,000s in complete depth, but at the very least, we'll gloss over them. I think that about covers it for recap, don't you, Jeffrey? Except that I'm looking at this list, and the 100,000 list dwarfed the previous two lists by two or three times. Yes, so we're going to move two or three times as quickly. Trust me, Jeffrey, I am capable of doing this when circumstances call for it. This is true. You put this kid against the wall, and he comes (laughs) up with the most ingenious, frightening, and terrifying things to get around it. That's true. (laughs) Starting off, we have Fourth and Inches Accolade. So Fourth and Inches was Accolade's attempt to do for football what Hardball did for baseball. Like Hardball, it was created by Bob Whitehead. We talked about Hardball in the last episode. It's notable because it was just about the first game to do 11-on-11 football. However, it did it very poorly. So I think people bought it because the Accolade name was big in sports, but a lot of those 100,000 people probably regretted it. Fourth and Inches, 127, 1989. Ace of Aces by Accolade. Ace of Aces was created by a third-party developer, Artec, for them. And it's another one of those flight games. We talked the last time how the military flight simulators were big. And look, here's another one that reached 100,000 units as certified to 1988 Continuing Electronic Arts Construction Set, we have Adventure Construction Set. Exactly. So we already talked last time about how after pinball and music construction set did so well, they just kept doing construction sets. So here's Adventure Construction Set. It was created by Stuart Smith, who was actually a big pioneer in RPGs. He did some very early RPGs, not for Electronic Arts, in the late 1970s, early 1980s. Nothing that stuck long term, but he was another one of these big pioneers on the Apple II platform and games, which is, of course, why Electronic Arts recruited him, because they were going after all those kind of people. And it was a build-your-own-adventure-slash-role-playing-game kind of deal. A little more niche of a category, especially at the time, which is why it didn't hit quite as big as music and pinball. But 100,000 units sold, certified as of, once again, 224, 1988, Adventure Construction Set. Alphabet Zoo by Spinnaker Software. Yes, indeed. So Spinnaker is another one of these companies that was big in the early days in the uh, edutainment field. So I'm guessing what we have here is an edutainment kind of product as we did with our good friends at High Tech Expressions and their fancy Christmas game. We're just going to put this into YouTube real fast and see what comes back. Maybe describe some of what I see on the screen, none of which will probably make sense without the video, but that is what makes it fun. Alphabet Zoo, Spinnaker Software. There it is. It's going to be an education kind of game. Oh, look, there's a monkey. Monkey face right on that title screen. I suppose that makes sense if there's a zoo. Hmm. The players don't look like monkeys, though. Oh, that player looks a little like a monkey. Oh, we're playing the monkey man. Wonderful. Are we an evil monkey that lives in a closet? Probably a desk. I think he lives in a desk. So uh, we're in a maze, and there are definitely some letters in this maze. Ah, yes, we are spelling words, I think. No? Maybe? 
Well, there's a desk in the middle, and we're running over letters, and it's making sound. Okay. Hmm. I don't think our friend here is having much luck. Are you supposed to gather all the Ds? Okay, well, there's a maze, there's letters in the mage, there's images, there's words that flash, you're collecting something, and I'm sure it was very educational in its time. And that's all we have to say about Alphabet Zoo, which was certified gold, 9-1485, so very early. Which makes sense, because Spinnaker was kind of an earlier company, they kind of petered out by the middle of the 1980s. There you go. Archon by Electronic Arts. We've talked about Archon before. We did it in our six games of EA because it was a launch title. We talked about how young Jeffrey very much enjoyed his copy of Archon. That's a very interesting strategy game, mixing board game and action elements. Uh, For more information, check out our six games of EA. And this was Certified Gold on a 9-3-1986. Arctic Fox, also by Electronic Arts. Yes, so Arctic Fox, the interesting thing about that one is it is basically the beginning of the company that would become Dynamics, because Arctic Fox was created by Damon Sly and Jeff Tunnell under contract with Electronic Arts. It was a tank game, kind of battle zone-ish. It was made for the Amiga, because for a very brief period of time, Electronic Arts went all in on the Amiga then realized it wasn't selling and went all out on the Amiga as a result. But Arctic Fox came in that period. It was, I believe, the very first game by Dynamics, though uh, Jeff Tunnell and particularly Damon Sly had done a few things before. This was the first time that they joined forces as Dynamics. That's about all we have to say about Arctic Fox, which was certified gold 11-5-1987. This looks like a productivity software, awardware, high-tech expressions. Ah, it's high-tech expressions again. We may remember them from that stirring time when the cat, who felt very neglected, looked under the Christmas tree and found that there was fish and cheese under the tree. The animals had not been forgotten at Christmas time by high-tech expressions in their product, Jingle Disc. But now we're back with something called awardware. And once again, YouTube's going to have to help us here. When it comes to edutainment, I am not quite as up on it as I am on pure entertainment. Yet you're providing all of this educational context for things. (laughs) That's true. I am doing that. So kids, this is what we want you to do. We want you to create Alex, the They Create Worlds video game, an entertainment product teaching video game history to you, the consumer. (laughs) Oh, dear. I shudder to think of what would come from that. I have found a video. Printer setup. Okay. So, yes, it looks like it is used to create awards. And purely at that, you know how everyone kind of jokes about how in the 80s every kid got a trophy. Well, with awardware, you can make those dreams come true. Every kid can have a trophy, or at least an award. I guess that sold 100,000 units, so hooray for awardware? Should awardware get an award? I think someone needs to make an award in awardware for award for getting a gold award from the Software Publishers Association on the certified date of 8-16-1988. Let's go with another productivity software from Broderbund with Bank Street Writer. Exactly. So we covered them last time because it sold more than that as well. One of the first very popular word processors on the Apple II. Certified Gold 914-1985. Get your loots ready with The Bard's Tale from Electronic Arts. 
This one is technically not where it should be on the list, uh, because as we said in our last episode, this is an alphabetical list, and they put it here under Bard's Tale, but technically it was Tales of the Unknown Volume 1, The Bard's Tale. It was going to be a series of Tales of the Unknown games based on various types of characters, but the first game blew up so huge, and the title was so long and convoluted that it just kind of became known as The Bard's Tale, and then rather than making additional Tales of the Unknown games, they made additional Bard's Tale games instead. Bard's Tale was the breakout product for Interplay Productions, very important developer and later publisher on computer platforms in the 1980s and 1990s obviously being published here by Electronic Arts. This was one of the games that finally put role-playing games into the mainstream. It didn't do it alone. The later Ultima games, like Ultima 4, were starting to get a massive amount of popularity at the same time. Bard's Tale basically took the formula established by the Wizardry games, which was the first-person view, three-dimensional towns and dungeons, and very tactical combat with a party of characters, updated it and modernized it because wizardry games had been kind of stuck in terms of their technology right where they were when the first one came out in 81. We discussed this in our Surtech episode. So they were still wireframe. They were still black and white. They were still primitive in a lot of ways. Bard's Tale came along in beautiful full color and provided a much bigger world to explore with towns and dungeons and provided more of that same wizardry style combat that people already liked. So this was really in the mid-80s when the RPG started to become mainstream on computers, and Bard's Tale was a part of that. It may have, by the end of its run, sold as many as 300,000 units. I mean, it was a massive hit. Obviously, it had not been certified at a higher level at this point, because this is the first time we see it. All we know at the moment is it was certified gold on 2-27-1987. Next up, we have that thing where we have the same thing in there twice, ah. with better working 8-in-1 by Spinnaker Software. I guess they should have done some better working on this list as far as proofreading. I guess they should have. Yes, we do have a duplicate entry here again. Once again, we're at Spinnaker, the kind of edutainment company, which means that I still have no idea what this is. It could be a compilation. I mean, it does say 8-in-1. Exactly. So we're going to have to do a little search in that. It is a software package, I am told. Big surprise there. Let's see. Ooh, cost 60 bucks in 1988. That's a lot of 1988 money. That's more than Ocarina of Time money. Despite the awkward name and low, low price, this eight-function integrated program from Spinnaker Software for the IBM PC and compatible computers ought to take a place on dealer shelves right alongside the big-name packages. With 8-in-1, newcomers to computing and experienced hands alike can save money while getting all the software capacity most of them really need. If you were to buy eight leading single-purpose programs to accomplish each of the tasks that Better Working performs, you would need to spend $1,000 to $2,000 and wind up with more power than most people ever use. We still don't know what it does, but apparently it does it very cheaply. Let's move on through this review in the Los Angeles Times, which reads way more like an advertisement than a review. Outlining is one of the eight functions, and eight in ones is the easiest outliner I have ever used. Usually I spend all of my time trying to figure out how to change from one level to another in an outline. Here it was practically impossible to make a mistake. The other functions are word processing, spelling checker, spreadsheet, database, graphics communications, and a desktop organizer with a memo pad, address book, calendar, to-do list, and label maker. I'm looking at pictures of this thing. It's pretty much a DOS version of Office. Yes, but for a low, low price, and presumably doesn't work anywhere near as well. 
But that cheap price did elevate it to big sales back in the day, which is why it features twice better 8-in-1 squared, 16-in-1s by Spinnaker Software, certified 119.89 or 623.89. Just choose your favorite date and that can be the right answer. This is going off the rails. <laughs> That's the kind of episode we're doing. This is fun. We're going to make it. We got a lot of games to go. We're going to make it. And yes, kids, I will be throwing all of these entertaining videos of stuff that Alex and I have been pulling up for our recounting for your viewing horror. Yes, everybody. Pray for Mojo. Next up is Breakthrough by Data East. Exactly. So here we have another one of those arcade ports by Data East that are peppered all through this list. We won't spend a lot of time on that. Breakthrough is a shooter, one of the many scrolling shooter run-and-gun type games from that time period. It was, of course, an arcade game first, and it sold 100,000 units by at least 224-1988. Then we have Bruce Lee by Intelli Creations Incorporated. Absolutely. So Bruce Lee is kind of interesting and is worth stopping at for just a moment, just because it was done in 1984. Datasoft was the original company to release it, though uh, IntelliCreations created it. It's interesting because it has that license, which was very rare back in the day, and it was also one of the very, very first games that you could qualify as a beat-em-up. It was not an arcade game first. It was a home game through and through. It was kind of a beat-em-up, which is just very interesting for that period of time before they kind of became big. It's broken up into a series of rooms because, of course, it is a very early game. You can't do something like Double Dragon at this point on a computer where you have waves of enemies coming at you. So you go through a series of rooms and you're just attacking a couple of enemies at a time. And there's multi-level. It's it's a little bit platformy in that sense. It's not quite what you would consider a classic beat-em-up just a few years later, but it was definitely one of the first games where you were punching and kicking your way to glory instead of uh, just shooting things or jumping over things or jumping on things or all the other common stuff you were doing in 1984. As a result, I guess it uh, gained enough notoriety to be certified gold by 12 to 1987. Bruce Lee needs to get some burger time in by Data East Incorporated. Exactly. Uh, Another classic platformer. Listeners of this show probably know Burger Time. If they don't, go look it up, because we don't have time to talk about everybody in depth. It's just all these Data East arcade games obviously did very well on computers, particularly the Commodore 64. Certified Gold 8-17-1988. High Tech Expressions is back again with Cardware, which I am guessing means you make cards now. I'm not going to look this one up. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that cardware does for cards what awardware does for awards. Once we have made our award for awardware, for getting the gold award from the SPA, we should also send them a card saying how happy we are that they won their award, and we should use cardware to do that. From High Tech Expressions, certified gold 9 to 1987. But if you're not good enough to have an award... Then our next publisher, Springboard Software, has the software for you with Certificate Maker. There you go. More productivity software. We may remember Springboard Software as being active early in desktop publishing. They had a news program that we covered in the previous episode that sold even better. 
Here we're making certificates. It probably makes better certificates than Awardware makes awards, since Springboard is actually aimed more at the professional market and High Tech Expressions is aimed more at the youth educational market. Again, I'm not going to look it up. I'm sure it's very lovely, and that's why it sold at least 100,000 units by 9-1-1988. I'll just interrupt the stream of consciousness here to remind again that we're going to see some non-games on this list. And as you see, the non-games we're seeing are mostly things that you might use in the home if you're volunteering for an organization or helping out at school or have an amateur newsletter you need to put out. It's it's not stuff for businesses that's selling well. It's the stuff that's like we're finally answering the question, what can you do with your computer besides play games when you have it in the home? One of the big answers for that is making banners, making cards, making certificates. We're seeing that over and over again with programs like Print Shop and Certificate Maker. Well, just to have its baseball with Championship Baseball from Activision. Absolutely. So Championship Baseball was created by GameStar, which was one of the very first companies to be founded to focus on sports games. And then it was bought by Activision in the middle of the decade as Activision was trying to expand out of its rut with VCS games. Nothing much to say about it other than GameStar was founded by Scott Orr, or would become much more famous for shepherding the early console versions of John Madden football a few years later, which, of course, we recently talked about at the time of this recording in our Madden episode. So there you have it. GameStars Championship Baseball, published by Activision, certified gold, one twenty-seven eighty-nine. Chess Master 2000, the software tool works. I'm sure you remember Chessmaster, Jeffrey, seeing as once our computer lab in junior high finally ditched the Apple IIs in favor of flashy Pentium PCs, Chessmaster, I think it was 4,000 at that time, but it doesn't matter, was one of the few games that were available on those computers to play if you had gotten done with all of your pathetically simple and easy schoolwork. Back in the day, we played Oregon Trail when we were done, and then back in the slightly newer but still very olden days, at least I played the Chess Master when I got my work done. These were the premier chess games on the market. Software Toolworks created them. They were later merged with Mindscape, so the later ones came out from Mindscape after that merger. But that series became the premier chess programs, and there's always chess programs running around because it's great to fiddle around with AI and all of that. Can't tell you if these programs were any good with the AI. I was rubbish at chess, so it doesn't matter. I could beat the AI, so that means it probably wasn't very good. Because again, I was rubbish at chess. But they were very solid, very popular games. And Chess Master 2000 made it all the way to 100,000 units sold by 3-9-1987. Choplifter by Brotoboond. Okay, so Choplifter, I do have to pause for a second again, because this is a very significant game. Choplifter was created by a guy named Dan Gorlin, a musician who bought an Apple computer to fool around with and ended up making a game, as much to his surprise, I think, as anyone else's. He submitted it to Broderboond. They published it. It's a Defender clone using a helicopter instead of a spaceship. It's really the game that put computer gaming on the map. We've talked before about how the early Apple computer games were very blocky, very primitive. The action games weren't very good. There was some success in areas like adventure games, but action games and the computer did not go well together. Choplifter was essentially the doom of its day. Now, again, as the last time I made that comparison in the last episode, it obviously didn't sell as well as Doom did. It was a different time. Just as Doom showed that you could have amazing fast action games on the IBM PC, 
Choplifter showed that you could have amazing action games on the Apple II. There was more memory on the Apple II by this time, so you could get away with a little more. It was one of the first games that really showed that computer gaming had arrived as an action genre. Uh, And then the crash happened right afterwards, and everyone started fleeing from the action games for that reason. But still, this is a truly significant game, definitely as significant as some of the quarter-million sellers that we saw before. Big shout-out to Choplifter by Dan Gorlin, published by Broderboon, and certified gold by 91485. And remember, 85 was the first year that the SPA was doing these certifications. So anything that was certified by 1985, that meant that in the preceding couple of years, it was really selling like hotcakes. This seemed familiar again. Chuck Yeager's Advanced Flight Trainer from EA. Oh, look, they put Chuck Yeager's name in front of it this time, unlike the last time. Yes, it hit 100,000, 11,587. It hit quarter of a million later, and we talked about it then. Moving on. Classic Concentration from Share Data Incorporated. Classic concentration is not on the air anymore, like Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy continue to be, but at that time, it was almost as big as Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy. I mean, it was just another game show that the same company had created that ShareData had the rights to. You can tell, though, it's not quite as popular because it is only at the 100,000 mark, while Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy, we covered both last time at the 250,000 mark. Classic concentration was certified for 14-1989. I know where we're going to get the stuff for all of those certificates. We're going to get it from Clip Art Collection Volume 1 from Springboard Software Incorporated. You know, in this day of the internet, it is hard to explain how big, how amazingly big Clip Art was in the 80s and 90s. Oh, dear God. We were a race of computer users so astoundingly primitive that we still thought Clip Art was a pretty neat idea. This is what the print shop traded in as well, and we saw how successful print shop programs had been. This is the same kind of thing. It's just little individual pieces of art that you can put on a card, a newsletter, a banner, whatever else, and move around and put them where you want, and then print them out and have fun with that. It was huge, Jeffrey, huge, as I know you know. Think of it like this. Back in the 80s and the early 90s, we did not really have the internet. Nothing near like what we have now. The modern internet didn't really come of age until arguably 96, 97. Mm -hmm. After that point, then you started to have the ability of look up a website. I can look up some pictures. I can look up some videos. I can add that to my thing. Very much like now you'd go to Google, you go to Bing, and you go, I want X. And you got pictures of X. Yep. Throw it into your little project. You're done. You didn't have that option back then. You had to rely and buy from software companies entire collections and then hope that somehow that $50 was worth it to get that one little picture. Pretty much. Pretty much. That's why it was certified Gold 9-1-1988. A lot of people needed art. Data East is apparently unliked by this list because Commando is in here yet again twice. <laughs> Yes, it is. My only (laughs) supposition here is that somehow it's counting separately the same software on different platforms. It's possible. Since this is a reprint of the SBA's list, the criteria aren't really here. 
we know the categories because the categories are labeled in this list, but we don't know the criteria. So it's very possible this is referring to different platforms, though some of the other games on this list were definitely also on a lot of platforms, and something like Zork probably only made it to its level by being on a million different platforms. Your guess is as good as mine, but Data East is back again twice with Commando. Commando, of course, is the game that basically launched the run-and-gun genre in arcades. It was not the first run-and-gun game. Taito had done one a few years before called Frontline. Frontline came out right at about the time the whole industry was collapsing. Commando came out just as the industry was reviving again, so it really established the run-and-gun. Capcom was the creator of the game, of course, but when Capcom started, they were not doing their own arcade manufacturing. The rights to their early stuff ended up in other places, and uh, Data East was actually the company that brought Commando into the arcade, and now into the computer scene as well. Certified gold, either 9987 or 817, 1988. I find this next one slightly concerning because it's called Copy 2 from Central Point Software. I guess Copy 1 wasn't good enough. I think Copy 1 burned down, fell over, and then sank into the swamp. Oh, okay. So, yes, uh, Central Point Software, I'm looking it up now. Again, I don't know these productivity people. My book is not called They Create Word Processors. It's called They Create Worlds. Of word processors. No. But you wrote it using a word processor. Yes, but worlds are created with databases. Lots and lots of databases with all sorts of figures that programmers program in. Central Point Software was a leading software utilities maker for the PC market. Copy 2 was an expansion card, which came with its own software. So the Copy 2 was able to read, write, and copy disks from Apple II and Macintosh systems. Aha! So this is for all the people that had an Apple II and then brought a shiny new IBM PC home from work and were like, what do I do now with all that stuff that I did before? Well, you run it through Copy 2. Okay, I learned something today. Not only did you, the listeners, learn something today, I learned something today. This is a special moment. Copy 2, Central Point Software, 9-4-1985. Again, that very early date, which meant this was in high demand. We are now reaching some kind of deadline with Infocom. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> we do have a deadline, and I don't know if we'll make it. The listeners will find out by the end of this episode, however. We don't in the moment. Deadline, Infocom, murder mystery, text adventure. One of their first products that was not a fantasy game like Zork. It struck a nerve. It hit a chord. I know those are mixed metaphors. It's fine. Certified gold, 914-1985. Destroyer from Epic. Now we have a military simulator with a boat. We've had jet aeroplanes. We have had helicopters. We've had submarines. We had a tank, though Arctic Fox is a futuristic tank game, not so much a simulator. And now we have a boat. Destroyer, in this case, refers to a destroyer, a type of ship that is primarily used in anti-submarine warfare, certified gold, 516.88. That is why I make all the dollars and cents from Monogram Software. For those of you who can't see the list because this is an audio recording, Sense has a little dollar sign instead of a capital S. Very cute. Budgeting software, obviously. Could also be investment software. I don't know. But it's definitely one of the two. And it was definitely certified gold by 91485. I wonder if Monogram Software kept track of their profits on all of those units sold using dollars and cents. I'm guessing they didn't. Probably not. But for you, the consumer, it was good enough. So was Dr. J and Larry Bird go one-on-one from EA, which we talked about before. Exactly. So we won't talk about it again. Basketball. Very cool. Date certified. 120, 1986. 
Early Games by Springboard Software Incorporated. Aren't all of these early games? Maybe they are making even more early games. Early Games for Young Children appears to be the full name of this particular product. So it seems that we are referring to some kind of educational program once again. Somehow that does not surprise me. Yes, it seems like it topped the educational software charts in Billboard for 18 weeks. So clearly a good seller, which is why it's here. What games were they? Well, educational mini-games targeted at preschoolers and designed to teach basic math, language, and logic skills. So, again, edutainment's pretty big because you do have, as I said before, more affluent people buying these computers. Not rich people, but people that have a couple hundred dollars to throw around. People solidly middle class, people that are employed. A lot of times in, that ni- in the 1980s, that also meant that you were a person with a family. So it's not surprising that you're seeing a lot of educational games score so high because you have a lot of young professionals with young children buying these computers. So, of course, they're going to buy some educational products for their children as well. Early games, certified on a very early date, 9-4-1986. F-15 Strike Eagle from Microprose. Since we've already talked about that, rather than talking about it again, aside from its certification date of 10-25-85, let's go on to the broader concept of faces in general, Jeffrey. And with that, we're going to use FaceMaker from Spinnaker Software. And considering the age of the software, I am frightened to see what would come up from that one. I am definitely looking this up. Spinnaker Software presents Facemaker, copyright 1982-1983-1984. Sound, yes or no? White background, yes, no? Okay, yes, there are facial features. Oh no, oh no, oh god no. This is a problem. It, it is a program for making faces. It looks vaguely familiar to me. I used something similar to this when I was a kid. It may not have been this. I'm sure they had competitors. Since graphics are very primitive, The background is black, so the face is black. I mean, just like the color black, not meant to be a black person. But because the background is black, it is very easy to make faces in this that just basically look like really bad black face. That's that's bad. That wasn't the intent of the program. I'm not saying Spinnaker Software wanted you to do that, but oh no. Let's move on from there. Let's leave it at that. You have facial features. You put them on a face. You make faces. In horrible CGA graphics. Yes, in horrible CGA graphics, it, it devolves very quickly. Certified, 914-1985. And that's why we have a family feud from Shared Data Incorporated. They're the game show company, another popular game show, 100,000 units, 414-1989. And we already talked about Fast Load from Epics. Yep, so we will not talk about it again. Certified Gold, 528-1986. EA... You're supposed to be a game company, but yet here you are giving me a financial cookbook. It's very interesting, and I just want to stop for a second to mention this. We talked about it vaguely in some of our EA episodes, but you know the common narrative about Activision in the late 1980s is Bruce Davis comes along and takes over the company and decides that they should do business software. Oh my gosh, they're so stupid, it's no wonder the company went bankrupt. Business software from a video game, computer game company, ha ha ha. People don't remember that Electronic Arts did the exact same thing. Between 1984 and, uh, you know, 1988-89, they tried several pieces of productivity software. It's just that because their games were more successful, the company continued to be successful and nobody remembers this anymore. 
it's kind of unfair to poor Activision to pick on them for deciding to go into productivity software because Electronic Arts decided to do the exact same thing. The computer game market was small. The productivity market was huge. These bigger companies in the computer game field, like Electronic Arts and Activision, thought that if they could capture some of that productivity market, they could grow bigger, too. That's what Financial Cookbook is. Electronic Arts was never really successful in this field, but obviously people tried out Financial Cookbook because this budgeting software was certified gold, 11-5-1987. I'm frightened to know what this one is. Fraction Fever from Spinnaker Software. It's Fractions. It's an early education math program to teach fractions. Not the other kind of fever. Okay. No. We're crazy for fractions. And, you know, double F. So, fraction fever. It's the final fantasy of math games. Or something. Certified gold, 914-1985. Don't think any main protagonist probably died in it, though. That probably makes it different from some Final Fantasy games. Spoiler. Frogger from Sierra Online. That's right. Frogger, of course, was created by Konami, arcade game. It was manufactured worldwide by Sega. Sierra Online was specifically granted the home computer rights. It caused a great kerfluffle because uh, there was some confusion between Sega and Konami as to who had the rights to grant what, and they got very mad at each other. Sierra Online did end up with the Frogger license, one of the few licensed products they did. Frogger was a huge game in the arcade. This was the only licensed version on computer platforms, and so by 11-15-1985, it had already sold 100,000 units. Activision comes out with two sports games with GBA Championship Basketball 2-on-2 and GFL Championship Football. There's no such thing as the GBA or the GFL. These are game star games again, like championship baseball. So, you know, instead of the NBA and the NFL, which they couldn't get licenses for, GBA, GFL. Same deal as championship baseball. Not really anything more to say. They're sports games. Activision never did great with sports games, but obviously they sold a few copies. Also, I think it's funny that we have two-on-two basketball, like take that, Dr. J and Larry Bird go one-on-one. We have two players on a side. We're the NBA Jam of computer basketball games. Not that anyone will know what NBA Jam is for several years from now. So these two games were both certified gold. The basketball game a little later, because after all, basketball is not as popular as football. On 5-16-88, the football game on 12-17-1987, just in time for Christmas. Gato from Spectrum Holobyte. Yes, that's a class of submarine, the Gato class. So this is, once again, like Silent Service, a submarine simulator. It was Spectrum Holobyte's first game. So it was the game that they started the company with. It was initially a bit of a failure because they had launched on the PC Junior and the PC Junior was a failure. But then they ported it to other platforms and it did just fine, as evidenced by the 100,000 units it had sold by the date of 2-24-1988. Now for some horrible synthesized voices with Ghostbusters. From Activision. That's right. You can sing along with the theme song. There's a bouncing ball and everything, just like a Disney sing-along. True story. So, yes, Ghostbusters. We've talked about that in the context of Activision. David Crane did it. It was released on the Commodore 64 and on the uh, Atari VCS, which was at the very end of its life at the time. It was right place, right time. The movie was big. The game was decent. It sold a lot of units. Over 100,000 by 914-1985. We already talked about gunship from Micropose. Exactly. Certified Gold 9-1-1987. Hacker from Activision. 
Hacker was by Steve Cartwright, a notable early Activision action game designer who, at this point, once that whole thing had gone away with the crash, tried his hand at a text adventure. It was an interesting text adventure because it was the conceit that you were a hacker, as the name implies. The text adventure puzzles are like you're actually sitting at a computer and you're trying to hack in. You know, that's kind of a cool take on the text adventure genre. That's why it did very well for Activision and was certified gold by 226, 1987. Hardball from Accolade. We did Hardball. It reached quarter of a million. We'll just stop there and say that it was certified gold on 8-13-1987. Homeward from Sierra Online. So this is being cute, this title. It's spelled Homeward, as in going home, H-O-M-E-W-A-R-D, but it's actually a home word processor, W-O-R-D. This was Sierra's entry into the burgeoning word processor field, just as Bank Street Rider was Broderboom's entry into that field. Again, in this early period when the big productivity software giants hadn't coalesced yet, like WordPerfect, there was a space for some of these early companies to get in there because, of course, since computer games were one of the very first popular categories, these were the companies that had a lot of publishing and distribution clout in the very early days, which they tried to use to move into home productivity software. That all fell by the wayside as things became more specialized in the field, but here we have Word Processor Homeward by Sierra Online, certified gold, 11-15-1985. We return to another Data East arcade classic with Ikari Warriors. Exactly. Ikari Warriors was their ripoff of Commando. They manufactured Commando and, of course, published it on computer platforms, as we saw, but it was created by Capcom. So after they had all of that success with Commando, Created by somebody else, they ripped it off to create Ikari Warriors, which was basically Commando, except with Rambo-type characters instead, and kind of cool rotary joysticks as well. So it was a big arcade hit, and here it is, a hit in the home, certified 127 1989 This company released Jeopardy! 2nd Edition. What is Share Data? Correct. We did that joke before, but that was the first edition of the joke. This was the second edition of the joke, so it's all fine. They re-released it, presumably with new questions, or new answers, because it's Jeopardy. That's the way it works. It was certified gold for 14 1989 So Epix decided to have Jumpman and Jumpman Jr. bouncing around, looking for Mario. Exactly. Obviously, Mario, in the instructions on the cabinet of Donkey Kong, was referred to as Jumpman. It's kind of a myth that he was known as Jumpman before Mario. He was already Mario when it was released in arcades, but he was still called Jumpman in the instructions on the cabinet. So people were aware of the Jumpman name. I'm sure that's part of the reason why he chose the name Jumpman. It's not really a Donkey Kong clone, though, because it is a platformer, it certainly has elements of Donkey Kong in it. And certainly, Randy Glover himself, who created the game, has said that he was inspired to do it after seeing a Jumpman cabinet. It's a platformer, kind of a secret agent platformer deal, science fiction, diffusing bombs that are all around the screen, so you have to move around diffusing bombs. And jump, presumably. Ah, yeah, because it's a platformer, you know, like Donkey Kong. Single screen, you know, just like Donkey Kong. It was popular. Popular enough, they did a sequel. The Jumpman Jr. was actually a cartridge version, so it was actually in some ways more limited than the original, because it had to fit on a cartridge. There you have it. Jumpman and Jumpman Jr., they were 1983 games, uh, and by 5-16-1988, they had been certified gold. Another game we have already talked about from Data East, Karate Champ. Exactly, that rare game that made it to the cool half-million mark. 
At this point, though, on 7-21-1987, it had only crossed the 100,000 mark. We've talked about this in our Brotobund episode, Karateka. Exactly. This was another very early fighting game, beat-em-up kind of game. You're not against another human opponent like you could in, say, Karate Champ in the two-player mode, but Karateka was a series of one-on-one duels between your character and the bad guys. It was, of course, created by Jordan Mechner of Prince of Persia fame before he created Prince of Persia. Big hit for Broderbund, probably sold in excess of 200,000, may have even hit 250,000 by the end. But at this time, in this space, it was certified gold, 131, 1986. Data East is back with Kid Nikki. Exactly. Another arcade game, perhaps not as much of a classic as some of the games here, but still a big enough hit that it was certified gold by 8 17, 1988. And now we're going to have a special message from Spinnaker Software to keep your kids on keys. (laughs) Yes, in fact, we have three Spinnaker Software titles in a row here. Kids on Keys, Kid Writer, and Kinderkomp. This entire situation seems frightening and possibly disturbing. Yes, I assume Kids on Keys is a typing program. Either that or a music program. Yeah, but I doubt it's a music program at this early date. My guess is it's a typing program. I am looking it up. I would think Kid Writer would be the typing program. I think they're both typing programs. Does that mean that Kinder Composition is also a writing program? Kids on keys. Oh, we're taking off in a balloon, and they're waving at us as they go away in the balloon. Yay. This is kind of like Math Blaster, except for letters. Kind of like Typing of the Dead, if Typing of the Dead was just punching random letters as they fall from the sky instead of having to type whole words and sentences as zombies are coming to kill you. That wouldn't really be keeping with the kid-friendly aesthetic if zombies were suddenly eating the balloon man that's waving at you. This isn't so much a typing teaching program as it is a hit the right letter or number at the right time as it's falling from the sky. I'm assuming Kid Rider is probably going to be more formal typing teaching, but let's find out. Oh, there's another happy person here. Oh, C64 Kid Rider. This video may be inappropriate for some users. That sounds bad. I assume it has something to do with the audio, which I'm not going to be listening to. I'm just looking at the graphics because this is the right program. I'm assuming the person must curse. Okay, there's a farm. Ooh, the sun came out. This is what a page from a picture story looks like. You can make your own and save them on a disc. Okay, so it's a make-your-own-picture-books kind of uh, program. That's kind of cool, actually. I've been very cynical about these educational games because, of course, they're on very primitive computers, and so they're very limited in their functionality. But that's actually a kind of cool idea for a a kid's software in the 1980s. My hat's off to you, Spinnaker Software. Now, Kinderkomp. Okay, so it's like logical sequences, so it's letters, colors, logic sequences. It's like brain age, except brain age for somebody who's like three. On an old computer. Yes, and on an old computer in the 1980s. So brain age before brain age, or something like that. That's what we're calling it, even if it's completely untrue. We can do that. We're historians. We have to sow the seeds of some sort of inaccuracies. <laughs> so there you have it. Kids on Keys, certified 9-14-85. Kid Rider, certified 9-3-86. And Kinder Comp, certified 9-14-85. You can get the full story of our next three titles with Sierra Online, Online Systems, with King's Quest, King's Quest 2, Romancing the Throne, and King's Quest 3. To air is human, but they left the subtitle off of King's Quest 3 for some reason. 
but I know it because I am a video game historian. Ha ha. I am totally getting you an unlubricated single youth monocle. <laughs> So yeah, I mean, the King's Quest series was big, right? We talk about this in our Sierra episode. This was the beginning of true, fully animated graphical adventures. It was like playing a cartoon on your computer, or rather, like being Wiley e. Coyote in a cartoon on your computer, because you died just as often and in just as many stupid ways as Wiley e. Coyote did in Looney Tunes. Not bitter, but maybe I am. But no, I mean, these were big, bold, exciting games. They were very popular. The only reason that only three games are on the list is because by the time this list had come out, King's Quest IV had not been out that long and so hadn't had time to be certified yet. The King's Quest games continue to be big hits for several more installments. You can learn more about those in our Sierra episodes. So here we have them. King's Quest, certified 121286. Romancing the Throne, certified 121286 as well. Again, some of this has to do with when things were reported to the SPA. I doubt that they were really that close to each other in getting those milestones. King's Quest probably got it a little earlier, but that's when it was certified. And then to Air is Human, certified 52388. Next up, I guess this game is just for mommy and daddy after the kids have gone to bed from <laughs> Infocom, Leather Goddesses of Phobos. Yes, by Steve Moretzky, same person who collaborated with uh, Douglas Adams on Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's not as raunchy as the title makes it out to be, but they were going in that direction in a tongue-in-cheek manner. It started as a joke one time when the company was having some uh, very important people in to look at the company. They always had a whiteboard where they had games in production on the whiteboard and all the games were there and what state they were in and whatnot. And right before these very important people were coming, one Steve Moretzky is a joke wrote at the bottom of the whiteboard Leather Goddesses of Phobos because it sounded scary and raunchy and might freak out the very important people. When it was discovered, it was quickly erased, but the name kind of hung around for a while and he was finally asked to make it. Not as raunchy as it sounds, but still an interesting title. Also, just about the first time that in a text adventure game, I won't say it was necessarily the very first, but one of the very first notable times where you could choose your gender at the very beginning of the game, you're in a bar and you have to go to the bathroom, you choose whether to go into the men's or the women's restroom, and that determines the gender of your character for the game. Nice way of doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Certified Gold 226-1987. It was kind of the last somewhat big Infocom hit before the text adventure thing kind of fell apart. Brodeboond apparently finished up Loadrunner in 100,000 at some point. Exactly. We talked about them at the quarter million milestone already. So we'll just say it was certified gold 914-1985 for those of you keeping score at home. Marble Madness from Electronic Arts. Classic Atari arcade game. It actually didn't do as well in the arcade as some people might have thought because there were very few courses. So it was popular for a little bit and then people got through all the courses and then it kind of tailed off. It had a very popular second life in home conversions. Could add more courses and all of that. It's, it's a game where you're racing marbles down sloped race courses with lots of strange and fun obstacles on them. And it kind of has momentum like a marble actually would. So it has some interesting control stuff going on. It was very popular on home platforms. Electronic Arts got the computer rights. Of course, it was an Atari game. It did well enough for them that it was certified gold by 11-5-1987. If you want a modern version, I can link in the show notes, a person who does the Marble Olympics. Yes. <laughs> yes, the Marble Olympics. Those, those are fun. Those are definitely fun. 
Next up, two games from Davidson and Associates. They are not Warcraft in Space. They are actually Math Blaster in Math Blaster Plus. Absolutely. So, of course, we already talked about Math Blaster. Math Blaster Plus is not just Math Blaster in Space. It is far more sophisticated, but really not that much more sophisticated. It's just a follow-up and updated version of it. Not much more to say. Math Blaster was certified November the 5th, 1985. Math Blaster Plus, 824-1988. What about Math Rabbit, Alex, from The Learning Company? We have to learn more about rabbits doing math. Well, we had Reader Rabbit before. We may recall that Reader Rabbit reached that quarter of a million milestone. It was one of the most successful early edutainment programs, put Learning Company on the map. So, of course, if reading does well for Rabbit, then math must do even better, right? Well, no, because it didn't reach quarter of a million units like the other one, but it still reached 100,000 units, 127, 1989. Next up, and I'm guessing these double prints have to have something that's not being communicated because you can't have screwed up this many times. Yeah, that would be quite remarkable if they had screwed up this many times. I agree. So we got, it would just be mean, 18, from Accolade, being on there twice. (laughs) Exactly. Mean 18 is a golf game. The 18, in this case, refers to 18 holes of golf, standard round of golf. They're mean because they're, you know, hard golf holes. This was kind of the precursor to what became another one of their big sports series alongside hardball, which was Jack Nicklaus golf. Mean 18 was first, and Mean 18 had a course editor. That was kind of one of the cool things about Mean 18 that set it apart from other golf games. Jack Nicklaus, in addition to being one of the greatest golfers who ever lived, also prided himself on his course design. So they were able to sell him on doing a license with them by kind of showing them that they had this good course designer and all of that. So this is not part of the Jack Nicklaus series. It was a precursor, but it was important to getting that license. Certified 817 or perhaps 818, 1988. Well, if we're going to have mini golf, we might as well have Micro League Baseball from Micro League Sports. Yes, we might as well. Micro League Baseball by Microleague Sports, actually had a Major League Baseball license, which made it very unusual in the day, both a Major League Baseball and a Players Association license. It may well have been the first to have both. I'm not positive about that, so it could be wrong, but 1984 would be very early for that. It was a stat-driven baseball game that had a better graphical visual look to it than a lot of those did. Because, you know, baseball games, and this is still true today, You can kind of separate baseball games into games that are very stats-driven. They're more concerned about realistic outcomes based on how the players would actually perform in real life. Or they're very arcadey and action-driven, which means they're more concerned about you and your friend getting together, and one person does the pitching, the other person does the hitting, and your own individual ability to work within the interface of the game is almost as important as the stats. This one was more on the stats-driven side, but had a little more graphical pizzazz to it than you would normally expect with that. It wasn't as big as something more mainstream as, say, Hardball, but it still did well enough to sell 100,000 units by 624-1987. New World Computing made me have to fight IRQ Hell so many times (laughs) with Might and Magic. Right. So Might and Magic, uh, of course, it's another RPG series kind of in the Bard's Tale vein. We've talked about Might and Magic. Kind of the big thing about it is it was so quest-focused. Every little nook and cranny you explore has something for you to do for someone, even if that something is just to kill 10 rats. 
that really set it apart from both Wizardry and even Bard's Tale, because it still had kind of the similar exploration, the similar combat, but then had this entire quest layer on top of it. The first game is also remarkable because it was basically single-handedly created by the founder of New World Competing, John Van Kangham. I'm sure I mispronounced that last name, but it's okay. It took him like three years, three or four years, because he was creating it himself. He started making it, I think, in 1983, and it was released in 1986. And, of course, it became the basis for a long-running series that Jeffrey was very fond of, which is why he put himself through IRQ Hell to try to get the sound to work so he could just play his zine games, damn it. So we have uh, the original Might and Magic here, coming in for gold, 127, 1989. Yay, he's back with your friend and mine. Music construction set. Exactly. We talked about it. We won't talk about it again. We will certify it gold as of 120, 1986. Carbo Systems is back with another potentially adult-themed game, New Improved Master Type. Yes, clearly some kind of typing program. What kind of typing program we will leave to the imagination of the listener. Certified gold 914, 1985. Well, batteries included, decided to give us the software paperclip. And no, we're not talking about Clippy. You hope. So don't worry. This isn't Clippy. He's not going to pop up to ask us if we need help getting through our list on time. He's going to stay far away from this list. And remember, the batteries are included. Unlike batteries not included. That's true. Cute movie. I love that movie. Paperclip is a word processor. Here we go again with those word processors. End of story. Well, yeah, there there were a lot of experiments with this, everyone trying to do it their own way before it kind of standardized around the word perfects and words of the world. So, word processor, popular enough in its day, didn't make it, was not the inspiration for Clippy, though it would have been cool if it was. Certified, 8-21-1986. If you're too young to know Clippy, look it up. And then I suggest go getting some eye bleach. (laughs) Pinball construction set from EA. Again, we talked about this because it was a massive hit. It was certified at a quarter of a million, and it definitely hit at least 300,000 in its life. Put EA on the map in the beginning. Certified gold, 120, 1986. Pit Stop from Epics and Pit Stop 2 from Epics. Pit Stop was actually kind of an idea of the new CEO of Epics at the time, Mike Katz. Now, he didn't create the game. He was a businessman. He wasn't a programmer. But the idea to do something like it was his, and then he handed it off to the people to do it. Mike Katz was trying to reposition Epics after its early days as automated simulations with the RPGs as a kind of action strategy company. That's a brand for Epics he thought would work better. Pit Stop was meant to be kind of the epitome of this combination of action and strategy, because it's a racing game. It's action. You're driving around a racetrack trying to finish first. But you actually have to go into the pit and make pit stops to get your tires changed or the other kind of things that happen in real racing. So that was supposed to be the strategy element of the action strategy is when you enter the pit to repair your vehicle and keep it moving. It was successful, so they did a sequel, and that's Pit Stop 2. They were certified at the same time by the SPA 516-1988. Data East is back again with a game that is four games in one, Platoon. Yes, I shouldn't talk about Platoon. Jeffrey should talk about Platoon. Jeffrey played Platoon on the Nintendo Entertainment System. Jeffrey could get to the fourth level. I think I can still navigate that forest. I know that may not sound like much. After all, games today, if they even have levels and aren't just open-world monstrosities, 
have dozens, if not hundreds, of levels. So level four? Well, level four was the final level, and none of the levels leading up to level four were what you would call easy. You start off in a woods. Horrible, horrible woods. A jungle. It's almost like you're in a war zone. In Vietnam. You're going around, and you're navigating this maze. Then you find a bridge, and you start crossing it. Oh, look, someone came up behind you and shot you in the back, and you can't stop it. Why, you ask yourself. (laughs) But then you go looking in the woods some more and find explosives. And then when you get to the bridge, you put the explosives on the bridge, and then the guy doesn't blow you up from behind. Yay! (laughs) Then you find a map and some torches, and then you accidentally shoot too many of the villagers because you have such a hair trigger that you're just going, anything that moves must be shot. (laughs) But that lowers your morale, and then your morale goes low enough that you die. It's okay to burn the villagers' village, but you can't shoot the villagers. That's wrong. (laughs) That's right. We are moral, upstanding soldiers here. But this is all side-scrolling. Then we go, we're done with side-scrolling in this game. We're going to do a first-person perspective maze game. We're going to have this screen on this left where you look forward, you navigate your maze, you need to find some flares, a compass, maybe some other things, all while all this stuff is coming at you. Then you find your way up to the third level, where it's just nighttime, first-person shooting and there's a whole bunch of things coming at you, sort of like a shoot 'em up arcade thing out of Terminator or Area 51. Then, if you're lucky for that, it's time to play a little bit of Zelda. Because we're going to do top-down, and you're going to navigate yet another jungle maze in order to find your buddies to leave. And that's the part I couldn't figure out. Because at that point, I figured, I've wasted two years of my life trying to figure out this game. I'm not going to waste any more. Absolutely. And if that all sounds like a very weird mishmash, that's because it's British. No offense to the fine British software industry, but they had a lot of licensed titles that were just kind of mishmashes in this time period. It was actually created by Ocean Software, but it was published by Data East. Uh, They had a relationship with Data East that dated to their Robocop partnership. Platoon, based on the Oliver Stone movie, which of course was perfect material for a children's video action game, Roll's Eyes. Yeah, it was kind of weird, but Data East was obviously very good at selling these games because every Data East game seemed to have been certified at least gold. This one was certified gold 127, 1989. After that horror, let's just relax in the pools of radiance from strategic simulations. Yes, indeed. Pool of Radiance, of course, launched the Gold Box series, the celebrated Gold Box series of RPGs from SSI. These were D&D-based, or rather AD&D-based, Advanced Dungeons & Dragons is what the kids called it back then, games set in the best-selling Forgotten Realms campaign setting. It was very kind of Ultima-style in the terms that it was tile-based, as opposed to the first person of a wizardry-style game. The Gold Box series was very, very popular, as shown by this one here, being certified gold by 4-7-1989, the first officially licensed D&D RPGs on computer platforms. Mattel had done some Intellivision stuff a few years earlier, but this was the beginning of officially licensed AD&D games on computer platforms. Next up, High Tech Expressions is back again with Print Power, the power to print. I'm looking it up just because it's High Tech Expressions, and sometimes that's hilarious when we look it up, and sometimes it's not. We're going to find out which is which. No one knows. 
Yes, nobody does know because I'm not sure I can find a clip on YouTube. Very sad. Well, we'll be left to wonder then. Print power. Obviously has to do with printing. May have to do with young kids. Probably doesn't have anything to do with Grayskull Castle. Or Castle Grayskull. Certified 8-16-1988. Racing destruction set from Electronics Arts. We're done constructing. We're destructing now. Well, we're really constructing again, but they thought it would be fun because things crash and blow up in races to be cute, and instead of calling it the racing construction set, call it the racing destruction set. But it was a racing game, build your own courses. It's just another one of those, but you can see this this construction set thing was working for them because they've all made it to at least the 100,000 mark and some of them well beyond. So here's racing destruction set, certified 7-20-1987. The learning company is back. With Reader Rabbit. That's right. We talked about it before because it reached the higher tier. That's the program that put the learning company on the map. 721-1987. I guess we're going to have to write it all down with Write Writer from Write Soft Incorporated. I'm sensing another word processor here, so we'll leave it at that. Certified 47-1989. The learning company wants us to know all about Rocky's Boots. Yes. So I mentioned this one briefly the last time around. It was created by Warren Robinette, the creator of Adventure, the adventure program for the Atari VCS, the one with the Easter egg and all of that. He started working on another adventure game after he left Atari, but then he kind of changed course when he met three educators that were looking to found a software company, and they founded the learning company together. He rejiggered his adventure game concept into Rocky's Boots, which is actually a very charming little game. You have to essentially build your own primitive computers or uh, logic devices in order to achieve a proper result. Hopefully I can find an example real fast to give of what I mean by that. So basically, you have to use a mechanical boot, the so-called Rocky's boot, to kick a series of objects off a conveyor belt. Some of those objects will score you points, but some of those objects, if you kick them off the conveyor belt, will actually penalize you in points. So you basically have to use and or not gates and flip-flops in order to make sure that you only kick the proper objects off of the conveyor belt. So you're literally constructing a very, very primitive logic machine or computer in order to achieve your objective. I just think that's a far more charming educational concept than the reader rabbits and math blasters of the world, personally. Definitely. That's the sort of knowledge you need to do computer engineering, the kind of knowledge you need to do computer programming having a fundamental understanding of how not and and or, not and, not or work. Mm -hmm. To this day, I occasionally get stumped when you do a not this and this as opposed to not this or not this. Mm -hmm. Those are the same logical things, but when you look at them, your brain doesn't intuitively think they're the same. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very charming product, and uh, it's a shame it didn't do better, but it still did well enough because it did reach that magical 100,000 units sold plateau, certified 721-1987. Back to the game with Seven Cities of Gold from Electronic Arts. Seven Cities of Gold is a game that isn't necessarily well-remembered today, but it's an absolutely crucial game in the evolution of what we now call 4X games like Civilization. It was created by the people at Ozark Softscape, led by uh, Danielle Bunton, uh, sometimes also known as Danielle Bunton Barry. We talked about her before because she did Mule as one of the launch titles for EA. She was all about multiplayer gaming. 
about coming together as a family around the computer to do something fun. Ironically, her most successful game was the one time that she went and did a single-player game instead, (laughs) Seven Cities of Gold, which was far more successful than Mule or some of her other (laughs) multiplayer programs. Seven Cities of Gold places you in the role of a Spanish conquistador that has landed in the New World. And it doesn't have to be the New World as it geographically was. You can play in a randomized New World so that you don't know what's coming. You're looking for those fabled cities of gold, of course, as the Spanish conquistadors were. It's a game that's very much about exploration and discovery, colonization and conquest. So some of these are obviously somewhat controversial topics today in terms of of colonizing and uh, displacing natives, though you did have the option in the game to conquer or just trade with the natives. You plan your expedition, you choose where to land in the New World, you can start setting up missionaries and forts, you can start trading with the natives, conquering the natives. It's kind of got a lot of that 4X-style gameplay in it, though it's, it's not quite all the way there because you're not playing your own empire and conquering other empires. But it was the game that really got Sid Meier interested in this kind of gameplay. We would not have had Civilization without Seven Cities of Gold. We probably wouldn't have even had Pirates, which he did before Civilization, without Seven Cities of Gold. So this is the game that really caused Microprose to turn from that company that is the military simulator company, as we talked about in the previous episode, and turn them into the 4X strategy company. So even though this wasn't graded by Microprose, it's just it was so influential. And it was also, as I said, Daniel Buttonberry's biggest hit. Certified, 100,000 units sold, 120-1986. Activision with Shanghai. We went into great detail on Shanghai when we did our episode on kind of casual games. Shanghai is based on the particular pattern of Mahjong, where you have to match tiles to eliminate them from the playfield. It was very successful. It kind of, in a way, presaged how successful Tetris would be on Game Boy a couple of years later, though Tetris had already come out by that time on computer platforms and was already becoming popular. Shanghai was kind of a response to that. Very successful. Certified 100,000, 1217, 1987. Micro we have already talked about you and your silent service. We have. So we'll skip right through it. Certified 571986, as well as Skyfox, which we also talked about last time. Certified Gold 120, 1986. That just means we need to go to space with Space Quest from Sierra Online. Absolutely. So, of course, after King's Quest was so successful, there were several spin off quest style games. Space Quest was one of them. This one was much more tongue-in-cheek. It was a spoof. It was a comedy. It was riffing on Star Trek and Star Wars and all of these things, but it wasn't meant to be serious. You star as Roger Wilco, a janitor, who is the last survivor on a space station that's been attacked, and he's kind of a bumbling everyman. Lots of comedy, lots of traditional Sierra Adventure game tropes, including lots of deaths. Another game that spawned a whole series of games was very successful. Certified Gold 523, 1988. Next up is Spy vs. Spy, Volume 1 and Volume 2 from Accolade. Good old Spy vs. Spy. Spy vs. Spy, created by First Star Software, which was founded by a couple of guys that were actually in the movie business and were intrigued by the whole computer thing. 
Spy vs. Spy is a famous Mad Magazine comic strip where you had these two rat spies, uh, one dressed in black, one dressed in white, that were always trying to outsmart each other with lots of double crosses and booby traps and explosions and all of that. So they got the rights to that and they created Spy vs. Spy which kind of tried to recreate that same thing. There were plans hidden somewhere in this base, and you have to find the plans by searching through everything and then leave the island with the plans. Meanwhile, you can also set traps around to impede the other spy from what they're doing. So it's a two-player simultaneous competitive game. Very interesting, quirky game. And then, of course, it was successful, so they did a second one, Spy vs. Spy 2. This is Accolade compiling and re-releasing the two of them together as one. certified. Gold 127-1989. Well, I guess if we're doing to do all the space stuff, we better have some Starflight from Electronic Arts. Starflight is really, really big. Like, really, really big. It just about killed, I think, the crew of people that were trying to make it, because it was such a big, complex project. It was created in Pascal. That already sounds frightening. Yes. It's a... Space exploration role-playing game, kind of like Elite in that sense, but it's much more in-depth than Elite, because it has some of the combat and the trading and all of that that Elite had, but you also have an entire crew that you can hire from multiple species and have different capabilities. You can increase their skill level as well. There are 270 star systems that can each contain anywhere from zero to eight planets, total of 800 planets in the game. Every planet can be landed on. Some of them you'll regret it if you do, but you can explore every planet. It's a sandbox game. It's like Elite in some ways on steroids. It's huge. It's the kind of game that appealed to the simulation crowd in the middle of the 1980s that couldn't have been made just a few years later. Yeah, it did okay. Sold at least 100,000 units as of 11-5-1987. Well, if we're going to have all that flying around, we better sit down with Spinnaker Software and write Story Machine. Yeah, so I assume it's similar to that like picture book thing we saw. It's probably a way to write stories, probably for kids. We can't look up all the weird productivity software. No time for that. So we'll leave this one be. Certified 9-3-1986. Well, you just sparked off a sub-battle simulator with Epic Software. And really... What else is there to say? The title says it all. Sub Battle Simulator. Section over. Date certified. 5-16-1988. We're definitely having some success with math with multiplication and division from CBS Interactive Learning. Well, it multiplied at least up to 100,000 as of 8-20-86. I can tell you that much. And that's all I'm going to tell you. And then we have Epics back again with Summer Games 1 and Summer Games 2. The original Summer Games, Summer Games 1, made it to the next level. Summer Games 2 did not. It topped out here at the 100,000 mark, but different events, but more of the same kind of thing that was in the original Summer Games. Both certified 528, 1986. Super Huey from Cosme A Corporation. Helicopter action game, first-person view, popular in its time. Company didn't last much longer after releasing it. Definitely the company's biggest hit. Kind of forgotten today. Big in its time, certified for 1987 Hopefully with this long list, we don't get suspended with Infocom. Another Infocom interactive fiction product. The interesting thing about suspended is that you are actually at the center of a uh, control system in a futuristic facility 
you've been awakened from stasis because everything's gone horribly wrong and you don't actually move around, but you have several robots that you can move around to fix what has gone wrong in this station. So you're navigating multiple characters, moving them around at the same time and trying to fix things in this particular game. Interesting little twist on the interactive fiction of Infocom. Successful, 100,000 units, 226, 1987. If you have that many robots, Data East has you covered with Tag Team. Yes, Tag Team Wrestling. It's a wrestling game. I'm sick of seeing Data East on this list. Congratulations, Data East. This was certified 9-9-1987. A game that has spawned a generation of games, Temple of Apsai from Epix. Yep, one of the first computer role-playing games. We've talked about it in that context before, so we won't talk about it now. It is the game that put automated simulations on the map, which, of course, later changed its name to Epix. John Freeman, Jim Connolly, classic, certified 516-1988. Terrafin is here with another productivity software with Terrafin Logo Language. Oh, Jeffrey, that's got to bring back the memories. No. Oh, it does. You just don't know it. You know what a te- you know what a terrapin is, don't you? It's a turtle. Oh God! <laughs> you know terrapin logo language, Mister Jeffrey. You know it. I hate that thing. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, logo was a programming language. I mean, it still is technically, I suppose. A bad one. That was actually created for use in artificial intelligence work, but it was specifically designed to be accessible to children. It wasn't meant to be a powerful language, you know, as you say, a kind of terrible language, but it was created in the 60s, and it was meant to kind of familiarize kids with the idea of programming languages. Yes, back in our very primitive Apple II days in junior high that I alluded to before, one of the things that we had to do was draw pictures using the Terrapin logo language. You would have a turtle on the screen. It was actually a turtle, your cursor, or whatever you want to call it, because it's not really a cursor, but we'll call it that, was a turtle. Basically, you could give it commands to move around and draw lines. Not in real time, obviously. You give it a command, and then it moves to the new position, and the line forms between them. We had to make things in logo, and it was very tedious. And it was such an old program, the delete key didn't work, and that was a problem. Or the backspace key, I'm sorry, didn't work. You had to use the delete key, and that was unfortunate. But we made it through. We finally got Pentiums to play Chess Master on, but that was several years later. Terrapin Logo Language was was pretty popular in schools. I mean, it wasn't just our school. I mean, I'm, I'm making fun of it, but Logo had wide a distribution. One of the more fun uses of Logo back in that day was actually Lego made a deal with them. There was a program called Lego Logo that you could use to actually control specialized Lego sets. You could build a Lego set and then give it commands, hook it up the computer and give it commands in order to uh, make your Lego move, which is a little more fun than the turtle, but our school wasn't cool enough for that. My school in Hawaii was cool enough for that, and I would have gotten to play around with that, but that was the year I moved and switched schools in the middle of the year, and so I moved before the Lego logo unit. It's my tragic backstory, or something like that. Terrapin Logo Language, certified, 914-1985. Test drive from Accolade. We talked about you. We did. So moving right along. Certified 224, 1988. We're in the T's. We're almost there, people. It's alphabetical. We are almost there. The Ancient Art of War from Brotoboond. Yeah, it's a strategy game. Kind of a proto-real-time strategy game, which is kind of interesting. Since Jeff's being crazy and putting everything in the show notes, uh, well, we'll just leave that one for the show notes. Military strategy, kind of real-time, 
kind of cool. Certified for 1989, which is actually years and years after it was released. It's a 1984 game. Make of that what you will. The Bard's Tale 2. The Destiny Knight from Electronic Arts. More Bard's Tale. Bard's Tale, bigger, bolder, better. Certified 11-5-1987. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy from Infocom. We said something about it before. We've talked about it before, so I won't say much about it, other than to say that it is said that despite its many glaring and occasionally fatal difficult puzzles, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy itself has outsold many other text adventure games, both because it is slightly cheaper and because it has the words Don't Panic in large, friendly letters on the cover. Certified Gold 914-1985. Next up is The Print Shop from Brotoboon. The Print Shop Companion from Brotoboon. The Print Shop Graphics Library Disc 3. The Print Shop Graphics Library Disc 1. And the Print Shop Graphics Library Disc 2. I'm not sure why we can't put 1, 2, and 3 in order. I know exactly why, and I will tell the listeners the reason why, which they cannot see since this is an audio podcast. It appears that what happened here is the Print Shop Graphics Library is separated from the words Disc 1, Disc 2, Disc 3 by dashes. However, there was a bit of a formatting snafu when the dashes were created on this list. So the Graphics Library Disc 3 is connected to Print Shop Graphics Library by two dashes with no spaces in between. Disc 1 also has the two dashes, but there is a space on either side. Whereas the Print Shop Graphics Library Disc 2 just completely bollocks everything, has only a single dash, and it is attached on one side to Graphics Library, but is not attached on the other side to Disc 2. And because of these unforgivable errors in punctuation type setting, these three products are completely out of order on this alphabetical list. It is a scandal that we are reporting to you probably for the very first time. This is the kind of hard-hitting journalistic commentary you have come to expect from They Create Worlds. Not to mention all the other time they did horrible formatting errors and had things on there twice. You know, this gives more credence to the whole, they are just incompetent. They clearly don't know how to handle their end dashes, I'll say that much. Print Shop 9-1485, Print Shop Companion 9-0-3-86, Next up is Thexter from Sierra Online. Yes, actually from Game Arts, Japanese company. Ken Williams ended up making a deal with this Japanese company that brought some of their Japanese PC games over to the United States. Thexter is a shooting game, an action game, only published by Sierra in the U.S., uh, created by Game Arts in Japan. It did well here and went gold 52388. Simon and Schuster are here with Typing Tutor, not one, not two, but Typing Tutor 3. That's right. One and two are not on this list, so uh, you can draw your own conclusions from that. However, the third game stood up, 11-4-1985. But before we do that, we must pay homage to Ambrosia and the glorious exodus there from Ultima 3 from Origin Systems. Not to mention... That we ascended into the light with Quest of the Avatar Ultima 4 from Origin Systems as well. Absolutely. And again, the only reason these are the only two Ultima games on the list is entirely a matter of timing. It once again shows you when these RPGs really started getting popular. Now, there could be some weirdness here just because they weren't certifying games back in the day. 
We know the first Wizardry sold like over 100,000 copies, and spoiler alert, it's not showing up in the W's here. So there's probably a little stuff missing, but the RPGs were not as popular compared to other games at the very beginning. It's right here in this period, 85, 86, 87, that you're starting to see The Bard's Tale, you're starting to see Ultima 3 and 4, you're seeing Might and Magic. That's when RPGs really start getting big on PCs, on home computers, I should say. And so that's why we see Ultima 3 and Ultima 4, which were both certified on the same day, 8-14-1986. We're back to those good old games that we play on television. Wheel of Fortune, 2nd Edition, from Share Data. Certified 414-1989, and we'll leave it at that. Where in Europe is Carmen Sandiego? Where in the USA is Carmen Sandiego? Where in the world is Carmen Sandiego? Brodo Boond, we've been asking for years. Will you please just tell us? The main thing to say here is uh, this is the first time Europe has appeared on the list. Both the others appeared earlier. Europe is a little newer than the others. It may have even reached some of their heights eventually. But at this point, it's it's still at the 100,000 mark. So Europe, 4-1989, USA, 224-88, World, 226-87. Winter games from Epics. The games keep going. Yep, and we talked about it before as well, so we'll leave it there, 528-86. I'm sure you kids at this point are wishing that Infocom would just use Wishbringer to bring an end to this episode. But it's not done yet. <laughs> Yes, Wishbringer, another Infocom text adventure, this one created by Brian Moriarty, who also created Trinity for Infocom, as well as Loom for LucasArts a few years later. It's uh, it's considered one of their easier games. I don't really have that much more to say about it. I'm going to leave it at that, except to say that it was certified gold 127.89. Davidson and Associates is back with Word Attack. Obviously, we need to have a new Age of War, this time with words. That's right. Now that we've blasted all the math, we're attacking all the words. Certified Gold 825, 1986. Which is why we need to save the words by writing them down. And why not you do that with Word Writer with Spellchecker from Timeworks Incorporated? Hey, Spellcheckers were a big deal back in the day. That was like science fiction. A computer knows when you misspelled a word. Devilry! Devilry! <laughs> so that's a selling point, man. I mean, if I had made Word Writer with Spellchecker, I'd have made sure the Spellchecker was in the title, too. And it clearly helped, because this word processor, another one, so many, did indeed go gold 9-4-1986. Epics, will you please just end these games? I'm going to take this World Games here and be done with it. So we haven't done World Games. World Games, we mentioned last time, was not quite as popular as some of the other entries in the series. It had some quirkier events in it, like the Caber Toss. But it was still successful. All the games games were successful. So it did reach that 100,000 unit mark, 5-16-1988. Why, Epics? Why are you still on this list with the world's greatest baseball? Well... All I'm going to say is Hardball reached over 250,000 copies. World's Greatest Baseball didn't. So I don't know about that little bit of advertising. But I can tell you that it did reach 100,000 units at least, 516-1988. The Learning Company continues its rabbit-themed software with Writer Rabbit. That's right. We had Reader, we had Math, now we have Writer. It's the trifecta. It's reading, writing, and arithmetic. We've hit the three R's. Congratulations, Learning Company. Certified, 127, 1989. Now we get to go back to an actual game that I like. Zaxxon. 
Farmatelli Creations, Incorporated. Yes, the, we, we told the fast load story last time about how poor little Jeffrey had to wait all through dinner and all through dessert and through half the night just so he could play a little Zaxxon. Classic arcade game from Sega, of course. Really popularized that isometric look, that pseudo 3D look. Uh, you had to pay attention to the height and depth of your spaceship, not just the, the left and right of it all. Very popular in the arcade, very popular in the home, certified 12 to 1987. Finally, kids, we're in a Z's. And not just any Z's. Zork 1, Zork 2, Zork 3, and I'm going to go take this candle, snuff it out, and go walk into the darkness to have fun with the Gru. Because we're at the end of the list. That's right, we've made it. So, of course, Zork 1, which was the most successful Infocom game, it probably reached closer to half a million by the time it was completely done selling. Zork 1 was far more successful than the other two. It was the originator. It was on sale the longest because it was first, and they just kept selling and selling all the games. Zork 2 and Zork 3 completed the trilogy. For those that don't know, Zork was a massive mainframe game, and when they went to put it on microcomputers, they couldn't fit the whole massive mainframe game on a microcomputer, so they split it up. Zork 1 and Zork 2 are the vast majority of the original game between them, though Zork 2 also has some new areas uh, specific to that as well. Zork 3 is the end game, the final sequence from the original uh, Zork game, as well as, again, a bunch of other new stuff added in. They are a trilogy. They fit together. You can't move from one to the other, but each one takes place immediately after the, the previous one ends and continues your explorations of the Great Underground Empire. All three were certified 91485, kind of in the inaugural class there. Of course, they were much earlier games, so they've been doing their selling a lot before that, but 85 was the first time that the SBA did those certifications. And there it is. That is the 100,000 winners. There's uh, obviously a lot of 50,000 winners as well. We're not touching them. Well, we're not going to go through the entire list. I just want to point out a couple of games just so you can get some idea of certain things. I mentioned that Ultima 3, that kind of that middle period was when the RPGs were getting more popular. And you can see that here as well, because Ultima 2 is on the 50,000 list. But you see, Ultima 2 did not reach that 100,000 level. So you can see how much more popular those games were getting by the middle of the decade, as opposed to the... But it also had it on here as Ultima 2 being from Sierra Online. It was from Sierra Online. They published it. Jeffrey, you can learn all about that in our first Ultima episode that you took part in. If you want to go back and listen to that one, you can learn all about how Sierra Online published Ultima 2. I promise. It's all there. I'm not sure if I was there for that one. I thought I was just off in some sort of lost time and space thing, and something called The Guardian was hosting for a while. <laughs> that may be the problem. So that that's an interesting one to point out from here. Pirates is also on this list, uh, Sid Meier Classic. Kind of surprised that it sold so low, but I'm sure it sold more units as time went on. What else can we say about this list? Of course, Data East appears a couple of more times. For all I know, they were just making it up. I don't know. It seems pretty amazing that every game they released sold at least 50,000. So I, I don't know. But they're here. Good for them. Is there anything else I want to say about these? A couple of other Infocom text adventures make it. Uh, Starcross, their science fiction game, is on here. Their first science fiction game, I should say. 
The Hobbit is on here, which is notable because it was an Australian game, a British-slash-Australian game. Not many of those crossed over to the United States, so it's interesting to see it on here for that reason. Elite is also on the 50,000 list. Again, we've talked before about how it was kind of the first British game to have a following in the U.S., and you can see that here because Elite did manage to make the 50,000 mark. It didn't reach that lofty 100,000, but 50,000 was still pretty good in 1986 when it was certified. It just goes to show that this was kind of one of the only British games that broke through and came across the pond and was very successful. An interesting productivity software on here is Deluxe Paint. I'm sure Deluxe Paint by Electronic Arts went on to sell way more units than this over time because it became the de facto program that everyone used for pixel art on the Amiga and on PCs in the early 90s. Like, this was the program for doing pixel art. Electronic Arts Word Processor is also on here. I just want to point it out to remind again that, yes, Electronic Arts tried to do this stuff too. It wasn't just Activision. The name of that one was Cut and Paste. That's about it. Uh, You know, we don't want to run down the entire list, of course, but that's just a, a few other interesting observations from the 50,000 mark. Well, kids, I'd like to thank you for bearing with us through these two episodes as we go through this insanity of video games. I'd also like to thank you for just being fans, downloading, listening to us, and going, hey, I like hearing that Alex guy talk me to sleep every night. I like hearing whatever weird (laughs) thing that Jeffrey guy is saying. I'm entertained by these guys. And I'm having a good day on my commute, my nap, my workout, whatever it is, and however you are listening to us. For all I know, you just have speakers out in your front yard, and you're just having us talk to your plants. Or if you just downloaded us once, decided you didn't like us, but accidentally put us on auto-download every time a new episode's released, and have been too lazy to take us off... We're glad for your business, too. Even though you are not listening to this episode right now, for obvious reasons, you have also helped us reach this milestone, and we are indebted to all of our listeners and non-listeners out there on the World Wide Web. We do this for 100,000. Just imagine the nightmare that we're going to do to you kids when we hit 200. Oh, God. (laughs) I don't want to think about that nightmare. But I suppose we do need to figure out what we're talking about next time, don't we? We do. We really, really do. And probably something a little more hard-hitting than a list. (laughs) Well, you know what? I think it's only fair that after I spent half of this episode making fun of edutainment companies like Spinnaker Software, that we give them the benefit of the doubt and actually do an episode on Spinnaker Software. Because all kidding aside, they were one of the true pioneers in the edutainment market, and uh, the founders of the company have given interviews. There's material out there. I think it would be nice if we uh, just went ahead and took a deeper look than a flippant march through their best-selling catalog on a listicle episode. Spinnaker Software and edutainment salvation next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com, where we have linked to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's Video Game History blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies that Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at 
patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Please help get the word out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license.